Hello, everybody. Thank you for joining us. If you're joining us live, um, this is the First Impressions podcast. My name is Kristen. I am joined today by my dear friend, Maggie. Hello. And we are your First Impressions podcasters. Um, This is the podcast where we talk about Jane Austen and our love for her and how she's given us insight and changed our lives. And we never forget to give a big middle finger to all the haters out there. my favorite part. let's be real the haters are not listening this is episode 14 of the podcast (laughs) they've tuned out long ago um or now they're they're austin fans i definitely know that the haters aren't listening because no one has um like trolled us or harassed us online yet (laughs) yeah we haven't gotten flamed we haven't gotten any angry screeds and uh, i appreciate that so clearly um you know the internet hordes haven't found us yet (laughs) (laughs) And so, so last time, just to get right into it, jumping right into it. Let's do it. Last time around, we talked about Austin's novel, Sense and Sensibility. We talked about how it's a triumph. We absolutely loved it as we reread it again. And one of the things that um, we, we noticed as we were rereading it is how freaking funny it is. Um, and so today, a lot of what we're going to do is we're going to be talking about the hilarious passages, the hilarious supporting characters, and the true Austin style. She lampoons people so accurately. And just um, go through and, and make sure that the humor of this novel is really coming through. Because last time, we went through the characters in a more serious vein to give you an idea of the plot, to give you an idea of what sense and sensibility and how Austin was trying to tell us how to handle those two things. One thing I will say about last time also is that we did not quite finish. We did not quite get to the character of Willoughby. And so just to wrap up that last discussion, we're going to talk quickly about one last serious character of John Willoughby. Yes, um, let's talk about John Willoughby. Let's talk about because Maggie has feelings and, and um, we have a passage as well. Oh, well, I was okay. So let's just talk about Willoughby generally. Um, I think Willoughby's a total asshole. Um, <laughs> Everybody thinks Willoughby's a total I don't think he has a lot. So there's a scene at the end of the book, which I refer to as the redemption of Willoughby, which yes. is when Marianne is ill. She's at the Palmers. Um, everyone has kind of left. I think, is this where Colonel, Brand- Colonel Brandon's gone to like get her mother and stuff like that? But she's out of the woods, basically. And then all of a sudden, Willoughby shows up which is a huge shock to Eleanor because they haven't really heard really anything from him except he stopped. He was very kind of rude to them at the ball and then sent that letter, which was overly polite with returning the hair and all that stuff. Um, and he shows up and is basically like, is she going to die? And Eleanor's like, no God, calm down. And he's like, Oh my God, thank goodness. Because apparently he really did desperately love Marianne. And when he heard she was ill, he immediately left from London, rode all the way to the Palmer's house, left his wife because he's married, and shows up to make sure that she is not actually died. Which is, and one of the things that I really love about Eleanor is that she feels as the reader feels. You're kind of like, oh, well, that's pretty big gesture to, you know, leave your wife, drive, drive, ride all night, show up um, to find out if this woman is still alive. So you pity Willoughby. But then he goes on this whole spiel kind of explaining, well, this is my side of the story, telling everything that's going on. 
And he says it, and you just through the whole thing, for me, I just got kind of angrier and angrier at him because everything he does is basically fueled by his own selfishness. So it's like Willoughby tries to redeem himself, and I don't think that Austin is trying to redeem him. I think the character is trying to redeem himself. And while Eleanor can pity him for some of the things that have happened in his circumstances, at the end of the day, she and the reader are just like, no. And no. Eleanor does at one part start thinking of him as poor Willoughby. Um, yes. She's a fundamentally nice, compassionate person. She does see that he's suffering, but yeah, he is never redeemed. So I have some of it here. And I think much like the reader with Eleanor, she does feel sorry for him when he's talking about how he, when he first started hanging out with Marianne, it was like just a lark. He just thought it would be fun. He basically likes to mess with people's feelings because, again, asshole. Um, and then, of course, he falls in love with her. Yeah. Because, because I've seen I've seen movies and I've read books. So even when it's like a bet, like when she's all that, like the guy definitely will always fall in love with her. Oh, yeah, of course, of course. Um, <laughs> but I did fall in love with her. And I was actually going to ask her to marry me, even though we'd be totally poor. Um, and so Eleanor is kind of like, well, okay, you really did love Marianne. But then circumstances that forced him to leave, which involve the pregnancy of, well, they call her Eliza. He called, refers to her as Eliza, um, basically the girl that he knocked up. And when he starts talking about that, Eleanor is like, oh, yeah, you're a total jerk. And let me see if I can find a good part to read here. Um, she basically says, your indifference, however, towards that unfortunate girl, I must say it, and pleasant to me as the discussion of such a subject may well be, your indifference is no apology for your cruel neglect of her. Do not think yourself excused by any weakness, any natural defect of understanding on her side in the wanton cruelty so evident on yours. You must have known that while you were enjoying yourself in Devonshire, pursuing fresh schemes, always gay, always happy, she was reduced to the extremist indigence. So she basically calls him out and is like, okay, fine. You were really in love with Marianne. Meanwhile, <laughs> the unmarried woman you knocked up and abandoned and left poor was in those circumstances. And she's just yeah. basically like, you can't, there's, you, how are you going to defend yourself? He was galvanizing around. Yeah, he was something like, "Oh, I forgot that I didn't leave her my address." Uh Yeah, and also (laughs) he basically makes a a takes two to tango. Yeah, which is so messed up. Where he's like, just because you know, I'm always because I'm a cad, I must always be at fault. And like, you probably won't believe me if I tell you that she seduced me as much as I her. And Eleanor's like, I see what you're saying, but you can then leave. Yeah. And go, like, get married and have a wonderful life. And meanwhile, hers is over. And so I really, as a, as a feminist, I really enjoy that she basically calls him out Yeah, do you on think that. this is Austin's chance to get on the, the, that, to finally say something about that to the world through this, this Absolutely, book. absolutely. I mean, how many times did she probably see that? Or, where it's always the woman who has to bear, like literally bear. Um, the punishment yeah, is so not as equal as we could wish. Right, the woman always has to have the consequences of that and her life is ruined. Meanwhile, the man can just like, oops. <laughs> so, and so I think that's actually why she had Willoughby show up. Because from a plot perspective, you don't really need Willoughby to be there. As things are, he basically just dumped Marianne to marry this other girl, and she gets super depressed and almost dies from like pneumonia or whatever she had, the flu. 
But from a plot perspective, you don't need Willoughby then to show up. There's no like big denouement where Marianne slaps him and <laughs> has a moment of taking back her power or anything like That's that. Nice. He just sits there and kind of talks to Eleanor. But Eleanor, as the narrator, gets the chance to be like, how do you defend yourself on this? As the reader is thinking. Um, and I just think that it's it's just really interesting to include that. It's not in the movie, right? No, and I think that's a perfect point. And probably one of the reasons it's not in the movie is because it didn't further the plot exactly as right. you're saying. Um, and uh, yeah, because the main you know story is how these women adapt. And you know, to to continue Marianne's story, we don't necessarily need right. That. So, and it makes so much sense though that this is an opportunity for Austin to get up on her soapbox and get up on the world stage, but as writing, you know, by writing this novel and say, like, look at this, look at this. This yeah. is so dumb. <laughs> so I, I unfair. Like, I feel like Willoughby's character now you could almost call him an archetype where he's the like uh, ne'er do well cad womanizer. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But that's how I. I I firmly believe that there were people in Austin's acquaintance that basically were Willoughby. Too much money, no job. I mean, he's basically the opposite of Edward, right? It's very similar circumstances. Like, he doesn't actually have a trade. Right. And And he he hasn't actually inherited. He hasn't inherited either. He will. Yeah, again. He will, but... Just like Edward, it has not inherited. Instead of... He's just gone the opposite path fills his days with gambling and racking up debts and knocking up poor, beautiful girls and <laughs> playing with people's emotions. Oh my. So he's basically the exact same as, um, Oh God, what's his name? And right? yeah. So he's basically the same as, Henry yes. but I think that we would call that an archetype or a cliche now, but that's how a, probably many people in her acquaintance actually were. Yeah, I think that's it. I mean, there were no consequences. There was, I mean, society totally reinforced that it was okay. It's not like today where, you know, there there is a much more, much more conversation around this kind of behavior. Um, I think you you must be right. I I think that's so insightful too. Oh, well, thank you. Yes, amazing (laughs) insights. Um, But I think, I think you are right in pointing out that this was, Austin was like, you know what, I'm going to actually just say what, and uh, we talked about this in the last episode. Eleanor stands in for Austin a lot of the time. Yes. Where some, you don't, you're not even sure if you're listening to narration or to Eleanor's um, inner monologue some of the times because Eleanor basically is Jane Austen. The voices are very similar. So much um, of Jane Austen, I think, is her reading romance novels and just turning to the world and saying, look, I'm going to tell you how it really is. Yeah. You know, there is romance in the world, but not the way you're thinking of, not the dashing, you know, John Willoughby's of the world. They're actually assholes. <laughs> yeah, the ones who come around and sweep you off your feet actually usually turn out to be assholes. So we, we, so Austin takes the opportunity to kind of eviscerate that type of man. And Eleanor is, the, is, is her, and we as the reader kind of agree with every thought Eleanor is having. Like I said, you can still pity some things that have happened to him, but then you remember that he is the architect of oh, his yeah. own life. He didn't have to seduce that girl. What the no, hell? It was all his own choices. Yeah, it's his own choice. Yeah, exactly. And when we're supposed to feel sorry for him, and I, I always, I raised my eyebrows when Eleanor does say she allowed herself to think of him as poor Willoughby. I was like, 
why? Don't even yeah. go that far. Yeah. Well, that's us putting our kind of modern reader perspective. Yes, it, well, exactly. And I also think had we been there in person, when you're there somewhere in person with somebody, we'll you're far more sympathetic yeah. to them. Yeah. Yeah. If you, you are watching this, this uh, video right now, like we will look far more pathetic live. <laughs> <laughs> you'll see uh, you'll see Kristen's I'm gonna say it you'll see Kristen's like sad pine naughty pine paneling and oh, her man. like <laughs> damn damn this is Idaho You're You're not <laughs> I'm in a damn like might as well be in a cabin here this is this not thing. mahogany right <laughs> not in the capital anymore you guys Okay. Uh, I don't mean to diss your uh, pine paneling. I'm sure it's lovely. This is the only pine paneled room in the entire house, of course. Of course, you would see the one pine paneled room in the house. But anyway. So now I've like completely forgotten what we were talking about. But we were talking about Willoughby, but we can move on. Because we. Well, um, there was something else I wanted to say about Willoughby, though, and I'm trying to remember what it was. <laughs> <laughs> it was going to be super smart. I personally find. Oh, I remember what it was. Okay. I actually do get a lot of satisfaction, though, out of this idea that Willoughby... So he married this woman. I, do you remember what her name is? Gray? Sophia Gray. Yes. So he marries her for her money, right? But then she turns out to be totally jealous and makes him let her write the letter to Marianne. Mm-hmm. So basically, she's like an alpha bitch, right? So in my <laughs> yeah. mind, she has him so whipped. Mm-hmm. And under t- such a tight reign that he's actually going to be pretty miserable. And I love it. I just love the idea of her totally dominating him. Not yes. in like a fetish way, but yeah. So that's what happens. The tables are turned. They go out and dominate the world, but then money dominates them. Like they yeah. have this Achilles heel of money. And um, I think Austin even says in the end, like, he wasn't always unhappy. Sometimes he went out hunting with his dogs. And that was, you know, <laughs> he enjoyed that. <laughs> yeah. So does but, Willoughby actually kind of end up like Mariah? I mean, we talk about Mariah as kind of the um, example in Austin of like the the uh, like the Scarlet Woman, you know? Yeah. Um, but Willoughby kind of has, and she has to go off and live with Mrs. Norris, right? Right. Um, he has to go off and, and be miserable with uh, Sophia. Yeah, he has to go live with this like rich bitch, yeah. and yeah. he totally and she marries him. Forever. With knowing that he doesn't love her, that's always the weirdest part to me. I mean, what is so great about Willoughby that she's like, oh, right? Yeah, he must be pretty hot. <laughs> wealthy. If she's into, okay, oh my God, this is so great. I, she's my new favorite character, even though we never really meet her. So if she's, <laughs> in, if she's independently wealthy, what does she need a husband for? This is very Emma. Emma says this, like, what do I need to get married for? She needs to have a husband that she can, you know, if she wants to have kids and have someone cute, right? So Willoughby basically becomes almost like emasculated by this. Yeah, he becomes like turn. the useless wife whose only purpose is to yep. aid in having a trophy wife. wife. He's the trophy wife. Trophy wife. It's amazing. <laughs> okay, I like it. <laughs> I like it too. And good riddance to him. Um, yeah. Peace he's, out, Willoughby. So, because she makes basically throws him out she's like okay thank you for telling me this page monologue now get out gtfo he starts talking about oh i wish she was dead remember that part if ever i was free again and eleanor is like what in the hell are you saying inappropriate things about marianne like how much he still loves her and she's like please pray remember that you are still married 
And then at the end, he's like, if ever our circumstances have us both available. And she's like, what? No. <laughs> like, That's get just messed up. Like, go try to be happy with your wife. I could totally um, see, um, like, fast forward 100 years, Willoughby and Sophia are characters in an Agatha Christie murder mystery. <laughs> where Willoughby, like, ends up murdering, doing some super complicated, needlessly complicated murder plot. <laughs> It was his pointer puppy. <laughs> he like slathers her up with bacon grease and like sticks the dog. Yeah. Okay. So anyway, this is probably a good time to transition into talking about humor. Yes. So a little bit on a more lighthearted note. Um, there are so many funny things about this book and, and it's, we couldn't just, we could, we couldn't even stop talking. I mean, we talked for two hours about the, the, um, the themes in this book and how brilliant they are and everything. And unfortunately, because of that, we had to gloss over how many times this book made us laugh. And so we have to talk about some of those things. And um, there are some famous, I mean, some famous funny passages. And the, the first one I want to talk about, um, as a side tangent, many of you may know that uh, people who are really into Mark Twain make a lot of disparaging comments about Jane Austen because Mark Twain made a lot of disparaging comments about Jane Austen. He said stuff like, I want to dig her up and beat her over the head with her own shin bone every time I read her. And we're like, every time? Mm. Because... Who wrote first, Mr. Clemens? And the other thing is, there is a passage. So this is what people really think. They think he saw her genius and was frustrated that she had to, you know, write in a woman's sphere. Anyway, fuck him, right? But... um, With his shin bone. There is a passage in his work where someone is trying to make a bargain and they keep going lower and lower and lower. So it's where we started really high. In the end, somebody gets something for free, basically, more or less. And it's a comic passage. And people make the point that Austin did it first. There Mm -hmm. is a scene at the beginning of Sense and Sensibility where John Dashwood, um, the the half-brother of Eleanor and Marianne, after their shared parent dies, the father dies, John Dashwood inherits. And the father makes him promise that he will help his sisters and give them some money because otherwise they're going to be like, for the gentility, it's really poor. And um, so John Dashwood says, yeah, yeah, dad, I'll do it. Well, then his dad dies. And then John Dashwood is talking to his wife, Fanny. This is one she, of my favorite parts of the entire book. And and it's yes, and it's so funny because this conversation goes goes on, and every time she speaks, she readjusts his expectations downward till at the end he winds up giving them absolutely nothing because of it's her machinations. It says and, so much about those two characters, about how weak-willed and stupid John Dashwood is, yeah, and how greedy and manipulative Fanny is because she's yeah. really a like stone cold genius. She is. And um, she sort of clothes herself too in concern for her little boy. Like, well, if you give them to your sisters, your son won't benefit. Whereas these people are so rich, you yeah. know? Um, and um, so, so what does he start off saying? He wants to give them each like 10,000 pounds or 5,000 pounds, something like that. I think it's 3000 pounds. I didn't actually um, copy okay. over that exact part, but yeah. Um, and uh, you know, and she's like, oh my gosh, what brother on earth would do half so much for his real sister? And what will they even do with that much money? 
Yeah. And he, and he goes, uh, I would not wish to do anything mean. One had rather on such occasions do too much than too little, you know? Mm-hmm. And then she goes, there is no knowing what they may expect. But the question is, what, you, what can you afford? And again, these people are incredibly rich. And then, then he's like, okay, maybe I'll give them 500 pounds a piece. And she's like, well, they'll, they'll, they'll be fine. Think of what they'll have. Think of the way that they will live. Uh, she says, to, to tell the truth, I am convinced with my, within myself that your father had no idea of your giving them any money at all. They will live so cheap. Their housekeeping will be nothing at all. They will have no carriage, no horses, hardly any servants. They will keep no company and can have no expenses of any kind. Only conceive how comfortable they will be. <laughs> well, I'm like, I really like the part where he suggests, well, what if I give them like an allowance? Oh, like an annuity. Yes. I'll just give them like 50 pounds or 100 pounds a year. And she's like, oh, yeah, that's a good idea. Except, you know... Then you come to rely on that money. So my mother was left an allowance, and it was just nothing but trouble. And, and she says, uh, "You know, if uh, if she would, if she lives longer than fifteen years, we shall be completely taken in." Yeah, like, <laughs> like this is a horrible deal for her. It's 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 really awful, and I, I think I, I can't remember in what context we talked about this before, but this again, this scene reminds me of that song in Les Miserables um, oh, where right. it's like the waltz, the bargain but that Jean Valjean has to strike um, with the master of the house yes. for Cosette. Shall you where, carry our treasure away? What a yeah, gem. Right. Oh, we love her so much. And he's Beyond like, Rubies is our little girl. Exactly. And right. um, One more thing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then they basically accuse him of possibly being a child molester. And he's like, 1500 for your sacrifice. And he was, okay. Yeah. Well, I know a little bit too much about Lehman's. I guess we both. <laughs> but it's just the way that that is crafted, where it's like this, it's a, it's a dance between those characters as they bargain. And I see that in this, where she is basically, but she's leading. She is leading him around the dance oh my God. in this complicated manipulation. Oh my God. It's just like Lady Susan. It's just like when the, you know, I think the face, if you're watching I'm like, Ooh, <laughs> <laughs> it's just like how convinced, how she's able to convince people and like, right. Oh, Frederica, maybe she should go with you, but I just love her so much. Right, you know, exactly. Yeah, no, it is exactly. That, that is actually, I think where we were talking about it. Yes. Um, and the people waffling, around getting their own ways, disarming people with flattery and getting their own way in the end. And where like when women manipulate that, they don't have the actual money to throw around or the power. So they have to use the, they have to use their words and these um, convincing. Exactly. And so that, I mean, that's a really famous, funny passage and it's awesome. And they do it to great effect in, uh, in the Ang Lee movie we're going to talk about next time. Well, that actor the, plays Fanny is fucking amazing. Oh, she's great. Uh, the and next I, passage, I think I told you that she actually reads the part of Lady Susan in the audiobook I listened to. The next passage is one you're going to, you're going to like, you're going to laugh at, you're going to laugh at, and you're going to get mad at. And we kind of already talked about this. It's the passage where Marianne, says a woman of seven and 20 can never. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm 36. So I'm full of arthritis and my knees are going to give out and no one will ever want to marry me. Did you hear that? Bay? No one's ever going to want to marry me. 
You stick it to him. Well, we're talking about Colonel Brandon being 35 and having a rheumatism in his shoulder, a slight ache in his shoulder. And um, Mary, you know what? Let me tell you, I worked out this morning and did an obstacle 5K yesterday, and I am like, I'm like barely stand up. So there is something (laughs) for that. It's like, oh God, trying to get off the couch. So you know, maybe he does have rheumatism. I don't know. He fought yeah, no war. You know, maybe it's gout. Maybe you should see somebody. Oh, man. Gout is no joke. That is the worst. He needs to eat less red meat and drink less if he's got gout. So uric acid buildup, folks, that is no joke. Well, thank you, Dr. Oz, for that um, digression. Into- <laughs> hey, you know what? In my job, I, I see a lot of veterans who have gout. Okay. Well, now that I'm off of red meat and red wine forever... So, Marianne, um, Colonel Brandon is old. He's 35. And somebody <laughs> makes – some people are, people are making jokes about her and him. Marianne's 17. He's 35. And she's like, he's too old to ever feel love again. And then Eleanor says, well, maybe 35 and 17 is a little too far away in age. But maybe you wouldn't object if he married a, a, a woman of 7 and 20. And um, Marianne says, a woman of 7 and 20 – can never hope to feel or inspire affection again. And if her home be uncomfortable or her fortune small, I can suppose that she might bring herself to submit to the offices of a nurse for the sake of the provision and security of a wife. In his marrying such a woman, therefore, there would be nothing unsuitable. It would be a compact of convenience. And thus the world would so, be satisfied. In so my eyes, Marianne. no marriage at all. But that would be nothing. To me, it would only seem a commercial exchange. So basically, Sorry, according to Marianne, like I have cobwebs in my nethers, and like, <laughs> and you know, Eleanor, this is so ridiculous and over the top, even for the time. Even well, how old is Eleanor here? Like twenty three? Oh, I know. I think she's like nineteen or something. She's she's oh. way younger than um, she's way younger than Emma Thompson portrays her. Um, but she's still, but she's. I mean, she is older than Marianne, clearly. Yes. but not by much. Not, I guess not by a whole lot. So Marianne is not doing a subtle like dig at Eleanor for being old or anything at this time. And Eleanor thinks it's ridiculous. And here she comes back with, uh, had he been in a violent fever, you know, instead of a rheumatism, you would not have despised him half so much. Confess, Marianne, is not there something interesting to you in the flushed cheek, hollow eye and quick pulse of a fever? And that's funny. She's making fun of Marianne for liking a more romantic illness. But what does fa- Marianne actually fall into halfway through yeah. this is a, is a fever. A fever and she for love, right? She almost fever for love. Time. Do you remember when we were talking about Marianne and we said that she was um, like a Catherine Moreland gone bad where she's read too many romance novels? Yes. Can't you see her, though? Like, that's why that the tragic, tragically ill hero... Uh, like that is something that she would totally go for. Yeah, that's to her ideal to die for love, to um, d- descend into this physical infirmity when she can't have the object of her inf- affection. And Eleanor is making fun of it then. And Austin is sort of also saying to us, "Look how dumb this oh, yeah. is to 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 not care for your health and just because of a guy, you know, like yeah. to to raise this to an ideal." I think that this passage is clearly aimed at people who are older than Marianne who are reading the book. Because <laughs> when you hear her say this, it informs so much of her character. Because as the reader, 
who is someone presumably older than 17, you're just like, you are an idiot. You are ridiculous. Like, what else do you need to know about Marianne than in it's those hysterical. Exactly. What else do you need to know? She is a nutcase. She is hysterical. Hysterically. Well, she's a teenager. Yes, exactly. She's an impetuous teenager with all these highfalutin ideals. She's a teenager who hasn't been anywhere, done anything, has only read novels, and has this idea that, like, if you're 35, you're ancient, and you can never love anybody. It's also brilliant because, like you said, it just it. Both of the sisters' characters are completely, even in those two paragraphs. As a reader, you understand exactly who they are. And there is a um, another hysterical passage that sort of illustrates what's what happens to Marianne after. We were trying to give you give people an idea of what happens to Marianne after Willoughby leaves, and Marianne goes into such a depression that she no longer even participates or keeps up her end of the bargain in the social contract that we have with everybody. So in Austin, to me, there's always a discussion going on with her, Austin with herself about what are our obligations to other people? And that's huge in Pride and Prejudice. And it's also huge here when Marianne falls into her depression, she gets absorbed in her own life and her own mental world and her own thoughts. And it's really a demerit because she can't help anybody else do anything. It's so selfish and she sucks everything out of the room. And um, this is not, this is not a really an illustration of how Marianne is causing bad things to happen in Eleanor's life. But this little passage does sort of highlight the way she behaves at this point in the novel. And it's also hysterical passage because it's um, this, I think actually Maggie, you emailed me and you were like, this is hysterical. And did you copy and paste the passage of the toothpick, Toothpick man, Robert Ferris, the toothpick. Okay, well, you have to set the context. So basically, Eleanor finally convinces Marianne to leave the house for like 10 minutes one day. They're in London. Marianne's like, I I don't want to go anywhere because she's depressed. Um, And Eleanor's like, look, we just need to run an errand down the street. you got to come. So she finally (laughs) talks her into leaving the house, and they're just going to go to like a jeweler. Marianne was spared from the troublesome feelings of contempt and resentment on this impertinent examination of their features and on the puppyism of his manner in deciding on all the different horrors of the different toothpick cases presented to his inspection by remaining unconscious of it all. For she was as well able to collect her thoughts within herself and be as ignorant of what was passing around her in Mr. Gray's shop as in his own bedroom. At last, the affair was decided. The ivory, the gold, and the pearls all received their appointment, and the gentleman, having named the last day on which his existence could be continued without possession of the toothpick case, drew on his gloves with leisurely care, and bestowing another glance on the Miss Dashwoods, but such a one as rather seemed to demand than express admiration, walked off with a happy air of real conceit and affected indifference. Damn, so... <laughs> I just picture this guy like, at last, <laughs> I have found the perfect toothpick. This cuts to the quick. This is a total evisceration of probably a lot of conceited men that she had known in Bath and and and. <laughs> it just perfectly demonstrates Austin's sense of humor. The way her narrators are so judgy and funny. And, you know, like, bitchy. And I just, yeah. I just love, I was reading this, I was walking, because I um, read on my Kindle a lot when I'm working out or on the treadmill or whatever. And I just started cracking up and immediately bookmarked it. 
<laughs> because it's just, it's perfect. So if you wanted to ever show someone why she is a brilliant satirist, just have them read this section because it's, it's so funny, but it is, I'm sure for Kristen, like for me, it was, it was laugh out loud funny. A lot of her things I think are not funny, laugh out loud funny, but you just read it and you're like, this character is, is so great too. And my other almost favorite uh, funny passage in the entire book is, um, is when Eleanor meets him for a dance. She has to dance. And with that's him. when you find out that he's actually like someone she knows. That yeah. That's the part. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> kind of like, oh, this is, is really funny aside where they're running this errand and there's this total conceited toothpick guy. And then she, Eleanor's like, holy shit, Robert Ferris is the toothpick man. <laughs> it's like plot twist moment. And it's great. <laughs> oh, it's poor Edward. I mean, Edward has just the worst family. And if she yeah. really were in love with him and, and, mar- and engaged to him and having to meet all these people, yeah. You can imagine how tortured he would be at having to introduce her to his mother and his brother and all these. Oh my God. Do you know who Toothpick Man is? Okay. So you will get this, Kristen, because you're a huge Harry Potter fan. Okay. And I'm sure a lot of our readers are. Try to think of the Harry Potter character that would be Toothpick Man. Gilderoy Lockhart? Yes. (laughs) Right? Yes, he absolutely would be. So who else, like. Who else would finding the perfect toothpick case be such a project? <laughs> Kenneth Branagh should have totally played him in the movie. Oh God, um, well, I don't know. Were he and Emma divorced at this point? Yeah, I don't remember. Probably, yeah. Awkward. Um, yeah, but he would have been great. Awkward, yeah. Yeah. yeah um, <laughs> uh, was he, do you think Robert Ferris was the winner of the Witch Weekly uh, Most Charming yeah. Smile Award? <laughs> Wasn't it like uh, two two years in a row? <laughs> yes, two years running. That's right. That's right. But he might as well have been. And in his cheek, in his glib nothingness, is carried into this next passage. And this is one that has a quote that I always remember and actually use in my life. So is this when Eleanor is then dancing with him? Yes, Eleanor is dancing with him. And the line is, oh well, I'll just I'll just um, tell you what happens. So. They have this whole conversation where he proves to be this goofy uh, coxcomb. Like, he says, oh, you reside, <laughs> you reside in Devonshire, I think, in a cottage near Dawlish. Eleanor set him right as to its situation, and it seemed rather surprising to him that anybody could live in Devonshire without living near Dawlish. Oh, yeah. He bestowed his hearty approbation, however, on the species of house. For my own part, said he, I am excessively fond of a cottage. There's always so much comfort, so much elegance in them. I protest if I had any money to spare, I should buy a little land and build one myself. I advise everybody who's going to build to build a cottage. My friend, Lord Cortland, came to me the other day on purpose to ask my advice and laid before me three different plans of bananis. I was to decide on the best of them. My dear Cortland, said I, immediately throwing them all into the fire, do not adopt any of them, but by all means build a cottage. And that, I fancy, will be the end of it. <laughs> I don't, I'm, so we know that J.K. Rowling was a big Austin fan. And so I wonder if there's like any part of these, this type of character that she drew inspiration from. Because I can, it's just, I could easily take either one of those characters and put them in the other book. Well, and but here's the one. So needlessly dramatic, right? When he's like, "No, build a cottage," and like <laughs> sweeps water, them right? all into the fire. That's right. It was so I guess. dramatic. <laughs> That's right. And all also, the dramatic ways he, yeah, vanquishes. Also, and- I just want to point 
point out that back then, like, if you wrote anything, it's not like you could just have another copy printed off. Like, this guy had drawn oh, yeah. up. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and he's like, I threw them in the fire. I threw them into the fire. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And here's the line. Here's you the line that I it. absolutely adore. Here's the line. I absolutely adore. Eleanor agreed to it all, for she did not think he deserved the compliment of rational opposition. <laughs> yeah. So I use it all the time. You know, when someone's saying something that's absolutely nuts to you, like the healing power of crystals or some like yeah, conspiracy or like theory, you know, about Vince Foster or whatever. And all you can, and there is someone you really don't want to piss off. They're like a friend of the family or there's no reason to get into it. Um, it's Thanksgiving. It's your yeah. crazy uncle. All you can do is smile and nod and be like, oh, uh uh-huh, very interesting. And then (laughs) they do not, that's exactly what's going on. They do not deserve the compliment of rational opposition, of you taking the time to formulate an argument like it's actually going to be worth something. Yeah, And then you just take, you flip the page of the Eleanor Dashwood playbook and you're like, oh, this is the part where I just take the wine and knock it back. (laughs) Exactly. Right? He's like, oh, mm, mm-hmm, I completely agree. And then turns around and just like gulp, like, oh my God. And I just want her playbook. I love that you said the Eleanor Dashwood playbook. Like she's just the the coolest cucumber. (laughs) And make it like a Easter egg or something that we put out. The Eleanor Dashwood. Oh yeah, the Eleanor Dashwood uh, handbook, exactly. Say we talk about how like Eleanor and the narrator are kind of same voice one of just generally one of the things I love about Austin is she actually makes her narrators a character yes and gives them opinions yes especially in Northanger Abbey where she's basically like kind of shitting all over (laughs) the gothic novel yeah (laughs) her narrator clearly like does not like the gothic novel yeah Um, she has a very cheeky personality she does Austin's narrators have these very cheeky personalities and um, it's, that's one more reason why it's so funny and so great to, to get. You feel like you're getting some of her. So sure. the next character we, we have held off talking about for far too long, and we both want desperately to talk about her, is Mrs. Jennings. Yes. Mrs. Um, we mentioned her a little bit last time. But this character is, she is just an old lady who, who doesn't give, he did, well, she's she, she do. doesn't give a flip. I think we talked about yeah. this. She has literally nothing to do in her life but meddle in other people's affairs. And she's so good-hearted and she's so well-intentioned, but she doesn't have the sensitivity. I mean, this is one more character in Austin where people just don't have the intelligence and sensitivity to she understand. Have the sense or the sensitivity. <laughs> she doesn't have the sense of the sensitivity um, to really help Marianne, a very sensitive and <laughs> sensitive girl with a lot of sensibilities. So when Marianne um, encounters this huge blow that Willoughby is marrying, she gets dumped. She gets dumped. Mrs. Jennings, bless her heart, is extremely concerned and can see that Marianne is suffering, but has no conception of the depth of her heart or the depth of her suffering. Um, Mrs. Jennings herself is so, sort of more of a matter of fact person. And she thinks, oh, you know, she's young people, young people. She just needs some good wine and, and good food. And just to, you know, hunker down for a few days and just, you know what, though? she's not, she's not wrong. 
Yeah, she's not wrong. Exactly. And that's the thing about it. It's she's not wrong at all. I think in a normal person, Mrs. Jennings might actually know what might make them feel better. I mean, who doesn't like dried cherries? Who doesn't like olive? Who doesn't like the closest seat to the fire? Like those are all comforting things. The problem for Mrs. Jennings is that Marianne is a total mess. And because she has so much sensibility, everything is the end of the world. So when something bad actually happens, the normal cure is not going to cut it. And, you know, we talked about Mrs. Jennings bringing Eleanor the wine and Eleanor drinking it herself. If there's a passage, um, Eleanor, who did justice to Mrs. Jennings' kindness, though its effusions were often distressing and sometimes almost ridiculous, made her those acknowledgments and returned her those civilities, which her sister could not make or return for herself. Their good friend saw that Marianne was unhappy and felt that everything was due to her, which might make her at all less so. She treated her, therefore, with all the indulgent fondness of a parent towards a favorite child on the last day of its holidays. Marianne was to have the best place by the fire, was to be tempted to eat by every delicacy in the house, and to be amused by the relation of all the news of the day. Had not Eleanor in sad countenance of her sister seen a check to all mirth, she could have been entertained by Mrs. Jennings' endeavor to, endeavors to cure a disappointment in love by a variety of sweet meats and olives and a good fire. So there's a, and we'll talk about the movie too, but this is such a great line in the movie where Mrs. Jennings comes up to Emma Thompson and like Kate Winslet, Winslet who plays Marianne, flailing is on the bed, in the bed, right? And she's like flailing and crying. And, crying. <laughs> and Mrs. Jennings goes, I will whip up something to tempt her. Does she care for olives? <laughs> It's so great. I, think, well, I was going to say something about Mrs. Jennings, and now it's, I was just thinking about the olives, and now it's completely flown out of my head. Oh, um, I think part of the problem is Mrs. Jennings' instinct is to continually draw attention to the issue that yes. Marianne is sad. And, yes, 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 yes. And it's, yes. Like when you, it's like when you fall on the metro platform in front of everyone, not that I have any experience in that at all, but you don't want people to look at you. Right? Yep. right? It's like, a, I'm fine. I'm fine. Yep. There's nothing yep. here. Like, so Mrs. Jennings is just constantly referencing it and talking about it and making, uh, like, pulling Marion out as special and different because she is so upset. And it's just like the worst possible thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The And Marianne even says, the pity of such a person as Lady yeah. Middleton or Mrs. Jennings. What would Willoughby say to that? You know, because they're so sensitive. Um, and it's so true. And I, I mean, well-meaning people who just can't get it out of their head, that's what they're going to talk about. And it's, it's just a disaster. And that's exactly what's going on here. It's bless her heart. She's so sweet. Um, and this, this is uh, this is great. And I had but I think there's out- some, I mean, she is sweet, but the way that it's written I get the, and we have talked about how she really doesn't have anything to do but get in other people's business. I kind of, I don't want to say that she kind of enjoys it, but I think that she likes taking care of people. I mean, her daughters have all left the house. So having someone to be able to kind of dote on, and I she's, think is part of one of the reasons why she does keep, she doesn't let it go, it's right? Something to, yeah, I think you're right. It's something to do. It's something to talk about. She's sort of a Miss Bates-esque character where she has to have stuff going on. And Marianne even says in a different part of the book, she's like, 
she only likes me now because I provide gossip. That's all she cares right, about. Exactly. Is gossip. Exactly. Like fine. Like she has now I'm her new project. Like yep. making me feel better is now her new project. And I wish she would just leave me alone. Yep. Yep. Um, exactly. but Mrs. J, she, I, don't, I don't mean to say that I think she is a, she's not a nefarious character. She's obviously a ridiculous character, but she is a well-meaning character. Um, and I think, again, we'll talk about the movie, but in my head, I don't usually see movie actors at when I'm reading books, even if I've seen the movie a lot and love the movie a lot as the character when I'm reading the book, but the Mrs. Jennings, I do, because I feel like that actress does a really great job. Oh, yeah. Showing she, that she can be thoughtless and she gossips and she's sarcastic and sometimes she crosses the line to being mean. But she's also just this really pleasant woman who loves people and loves being around people. And has a good heart. And yeah. she's so many, she's done so well. And, and, and um, yeah, it's fantastic. We're going to talk about more about her uh, next time. I have so many effusions to make about her and her performance. Oh, I love when Kristen gets effusive. Yeah. <laughs> I want to thank her. I'm sure I, I don't know if she's even alive anymore. I mean, she was very old when, when um, sensibility was made 20 years ago, but if she ever listens well, to this she podcast. Like more that she was like 35. Yeah. She was, <laughs> Thompson was really old too. Um, I mean, they're clearly dead now. It's been 20 years. You know, <laughs> One of the things that is so delightful about Mrs. Jennings and about her um, relationship with the Steels. Um, so we remember Lucy and Anne Steele pretty much suck ups and they're just pretty much trying to hitch their wagon to rich people. And she is so blind to that. I mean, she just thinks these girls are just so great. Yeah. And because they, they, they really do. And, you know, Mrs. Jennings is just not clear eyed enough to see and to her what's kind of frustrating about her to me is that she sort of thinks that all young women are the same. Um, yeah, but I was saying that one of the frustrating things is that Mrs. Jennings, um, seems to seem, seems to see all young women as sort of interchangeable. She's like, Oh, we're going to get, get you married off to Colonel Brandon. No, we're going to get you married off to Colonel Brandon. You know what I mean? Do you think that she also sees all young women as her daughters? Yes. But uh, even more than that, it's like one person is good enough for another. Switch them all out, you know, like oh, all I the see women. What you're is... saying. Yes. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I think that's how a lot of, honestly, the culture viewed one was as good as the other. Is she like, does she have a pretty complexion? Yeah. Does she because have it's... any kind of money that she can bring? Then like one is as good as the next. What do you prefer, blonde or brown hair, right? Because it's a financial transaction also. So they're all looking at the eligibility of the match and they're like, the money's good enough. Let's go. And that's why like John Dashwood, he's really excited when he sees that Eleanor and Colonel Brandon are like friends. Cause yeah. he's like, that's a match, you know, like that's how people saw it. They didn't think about the individual people, yeah. you know, and their compatibility. Can they, get along? Can they actually just have a conversation without scratching each other's eyes out? Get these kids married. <laughs> Um, it's a, it would be dangerous to have Tinder back then because it's like just if you swipe both swiped in the right direction, it was like you're getting married. Yeah, yeah, more or less. Yeah, more or less. Yeah, if you get matched up on all the proper. Um, well, I know that's not how Tinder works, but <laughs> yeah. So we have to talk also about Anne Steele. Is an amazing uh, comedic character that unfortunately did get cut from the Angley movie, but is yeah, in the Davies adaptation. I mean, again, she doesn't really. The one thing that she kind of provides plot wise is she busts out Edward and um, excuse me, she busts out the secret engagement engagement, but they have Lucy do that herself in the movie. So 
in terms of plot, again, the character is not entirely necessary, but she is really freaking funny. Oh, God. She's such a, a satirical, sort of, Austin sort of lampoons these <laughs> these sort of feather-headed, feather-brained women who yeah. are all about making a match and also just... Well, she's really basically good. like Mrs. Jennings' perfect... She yes. is Jennings' idea of what a woman, young woman is, right? Yes. Yes, because she's all about beau, right? The she's beau. always talking about beau, uh, meaning young men suitors. B-E-A-U, um, right? Y- yes, uh, X. Uh, oh, for plural. For plural, the X is plural. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's French, right? And crazy. Yeah, yeah. Um, and she, she's always asking the girls, like, oh, where'd your dress come from? How much did your shoes cost? Where's your para- parasol from? How'd you do your hair? Oh, I'm. Sh- you guys look great. I'm sure you're going to attract a lot of great bow today you know <laughs> it's just like impertinence and all she cares about is men and uh yeah and so one of the things she loves is to talk about a man named dr davies well she's she, the brick like let's mention that she is yeah dumb. oh yeah oh yeah she's super dumb and i i don't think that she has any bow to be have honest a have a bow she couldn't even spell it <laughs> Yeah, and and so what she wants is to be teased about Dr. Davies because she likes to think that she has a bow. Um, So she's always saying stuff like, why should I not wear pink ribbons? I do not care if it is the doctor's favorite color. I'm sure for my part I should never have known he did like it better than any other color if he had not happened to say so. My cousins have been so plaguing me. I declare sometimes I do not know which way to look before them. Um, because she, she's trying to act like it's so horrible. She's, she's just like one of those popular, like in Mean Girls, she would be one of the like hangers on, right? The sheep. The Always sheep. Trying to make herself seem as cool as the popular girls. There's another great line where Eleanor, so she's saying all this to Eleanor. She starts talking about Dr. Davies. And it says, she had wandered away to a subject on which Eleanor had nothing to say. And therefore, soon judged it expedient to find her way back again to the first, which is about Edward and Lucy. And so I, I, I think that's a really real picture of a conversation in which someone is just decides to talk about what they're interested in to be complete, completely ignoring your, your interlocutor, your listener. You do not care at all whether they have any interest in what you're saying. That is this typical Austin uh, character as well I do I and one of the things that I love about Eleanor is when she thinks about or her reactions um to the steals it's so she's so funny uh she has no time for them she hates them (laughs) (laughs) well she and Marianne both and we talked about this too where Eleanor sees right through them immediately they're the only people in the neighborhood and of course because they don't have any money themselves they stay with the Jennings for like months Mm-hmm. And they have to hang out with them every night. Um, but there's something so telling about this sort of um, conversation where Anne Steele is talking about having overheard Lucy and Edward talking about their future. This is after it all comes out and Edward stands by Lucy. So anyway, she's telling Eleanor all this stuff that she doesn't know. I mean, she shouldn't know because she was eavesdropping. And Eleanor finally realizes this. And Eleanor is like, what? Don't tell me that. You you should not know that. I should not know that. Eavesdropping is because they all have this honor, right? They, they're so well, honorable. Anne relates what she heard as if she was in the room. Like as yes. if it was just like happening in front of her. Yes. And then she's like, oh, I, well, I'll let you read it. 
She says, oh, la, there is nothing in that. I only stood at the door and heard what I could, and I'm sure Lucy would have done the same by me. For a year or two back, when Martha Sharp and I had so many secrets together, she never made any bones of hiding in a closet or behind a chimney board on purpose to hear what we said. (laughs) I mean, I picture her with like a glass up to the door. (laughs) Right? I was just listening at the door. Or she like, it's like, um, Mission Impossible style, she like repels down slowly, <laughs> listening to the conversation. I was like, I was just, I was just happy to be there. Yeah, and but it also, I love that passage because it also illustrates how she and Lucy have their own little rivalry and their own little. I mean, yeah. as much as they try to be elegant, and as much as Lucy tries to seem elegant, she is just as bad as Anne Steele, which yeah. I think is hysterical. I mean, hiding behind, like that's. That's hardcore hiding behind the drapes. But that yes. always makes me think of, um, oh, God, was it Hamlet where the character was hiding behind the drapes and then accidentally gets stabbed to death? Because, <laughs> like, you just shouldn't hide behind drapes. It's not. You never know. It's not a good call. Like, someone could just stab a drape and accidentally kill you. You never know. The gentility of Eleanor and Marianne and their honorable, you know, ideas of what's right and wrong. And these girls are so far off that path. That uh, they, you know, and this is the woman Edward has to marry now, a woman who listens, uh, you know, just listens to her sister Anne behind the chimney board, you know, and um, has no sense of right and wrong. But that's, I mean, I think that another, I think that a reason why Anne still exists is it's very clear that Austin is, I mean, that's a parallel. And we'll talk about this when we get to the mailbag, for sure. Um, because Mr. I wrote us with a very insightful observation of the novel. Um, but you have two sisters, both in low economic circumstances, but they both have different, like, different it, it's kind of a but for the grace of God thing, like the Dashwoods could be like the Steels. Um, and I think it's, and also both, Anne, you've got Anne and you've got Eleanor both buying, well, not buying, but you know, like Edward is kind of caught between both of them and just the juxtaposition of the two sets of sisters and two characters. Exactly. And it really just makes you sad for him. And and this time around, when I was reading it, I was really bummed out for him that he sort of got himself into this. Oh, for Edward? Oh, you know what? I wasn't. This is very similar kind of. I mean, it's not similar to Willoughby because Edward didn't, like, knock up some poor girl. But he is in that situation of his own making. Yeah, but he was Part of it is because he never had the balls to break off the engagement during the, like, what, five years? Yes, that's true. Well, I mean, that's unfair to her, you know? Like, he gave his word. I mean, he he didn't want to make it I guess I kind of get the feeling, though, um, that, yes, he gave his word and he does stick by his word even when it all hits the fan, right? But part of it is also because he was never, he kind of avoided her. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, you get the feeling that, and I think we've said this before, too, if people would just sit down and talk to each other. Yeah. (laughs) A lot of the drama would be avoided. And uh, I I feel for him, too, in getting these letters from her, because remember he shows Eleanor the letter from Lucy at the end, and it's, like, terribly written and uh, kind of more or less just... Oh, childish and he's like not I love the line not for the world would I have had you read one of her letters in former days because yeah. then 
you would know what I had decided to do and who I thought was valuable at that time. And and now I completely do not find her worthwhile. Um, but I, you know, he, he, he made a promise and he always said, he said up until the end, I thought she loved me. Yeah. yeah. And I think that Austin does a really nice job of making Edward much more sympathetic because Lucy is, totally unsympathetic. She is a total manipulator. So it's not, it's not like they were high school sweethearts and he went to college and was like, well, stay together. I still love you. Uh And then he gets there and is like, Oh God, why did I say that? I was so stupid. Like we've changed so much. Like Lucy is kind of a horrible person. But she knew so, exactly what she was doing too. She's yeah, so manipulative. Someone she book. knew wouldn't pitch her. Yes, exactly. Yes, I think that's a good point. Yeah. Maybe she did even pick him out because she knew he was so honorable. I think that's an excellent point. And, um, you know, she's so manipulative that it, it's easy to imagine him falling into her thrall. You Didn't know he also I mean? say, like, she was basically the first single lady he ever hung out around? Um, I don't know if it was the first one, but he did say he hang, hung out around her a lot. And yeah, she was he's like, I nice don't, I didn't have like a large, I mean, like before, people then didn't have large. That's true. That's true. He does say that. He, he does say, I didn't have a large acquaintance. I had nobody to compare her to. Yeah. So I'm That's sure she turned on the steel charm. Yeah. And by charm, <laughs> I mean. Trademark steel charm. And so when he proposes, when he, she knows that he will keep He's honorable and will keep his word. So you do um, feel sorry for him. It is on one hand, he's the one who did the proposing, I assume, right? So he, and he's the, also the one who didn't see enough of her character. But you feel, you definitely feel more sorry for him as the reader because he is a genuinely really nice guy. And now we have to get into, just quickly, but I love this character, Charlotte Palmer, okay? Yes. Um, oh my God. Imelda Staunton. Yes, yes. And um, it's a little exactly. bit of a throwaway character. She's not really in in it a lot, but she has a very funny, uh, well, should we say verbal tick? <laughs> That's, uh, that is, um, obviously people in Austin's life had this and got on Austin's last damn nerve because <laughs> clearly, she's clearly very um, uh, uh, satirized in, in the book. Where So Charlotte is married to Mr. Palmer. And as we know, Mr. Palmer is the crotchety sort of like <laughs> uh, Hugh Laurie type, um, really rude and just blunt kind of guy. And he's married well, to he Charlotte. he basically married Mrs. Bennett. Yes, it's Mr. Okay. and Mrs. Bennett. Exactly. But and instead of just like kind of retreating to his library and just, Mr. Bennett is still pleasant. Mr. Palmer is basically just like, wants to kill himself every well, it's an affectation I mean it, it, it's it's an affectation for sure and he I don't it, it describes him as being happy in his life like he's like he's found out that he married a silly woman and eh, he still plays billiards and makes fun of his child and whatever um is he he's he not into his, his baby he's not into his baby it says in the book he can't even be persuaded to acknowledge the simple proposition that it was the finest child in the world. Some people, some people are just not baby people. Who's fond? It says he's fond of his child, though affecting to slight it. But Charlotte is a. Uh, she has. She laughs after everything she says. Everything raises merriment, and so they go back to Charlotte's house, um, uh, Cleveland. Yes. And uh, they're they're dawdling around, and this, so this is what it says. The morning was easily whiled away, and lounging round the kitchen garden, examining the bloom upon its walls. 
and listening to the gardener's lamentations upon blights in dawdling through the greenhouse, where the loss of her favorite plants, unwarily exposed and nipped by the lingering frost, raised the laughter of Charlotte. And in visiting her poultry lot yard, where, in the disappointed hopes of her dairy maid, by hens forsaking their nests, or being stolen by a fox, or in the rapid decrease of a promising young brood, she found fresh sources of merriment. So she's laughing at everything, uh, everything that's said to her, everything that's going on. Um, and it says later, it says, nothing was wanting on Mrs. Palmer's side that, that constant and friendly good humor could do to make themselves feel, feel welcome. The openness and heartiness of her manner more than atoned for that want of recollection and elegance, which made her often deficient in the forms of politeness. Her kindness, recommended by so pretty a face, was engaging. Her folly, though evident, was not disgusting because it was not conceited, and Eleanor could have forgiven everything but her laugh. Yeah. <laughs> so she's basically the sweetest person in the world, not too bright, but her she brays like a donkey. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But isn't she, so Mr. Palmer is basically really mean to her. Like, he'll say really rude things to her, and she'll just go, oh, he's so droll. Oh, he's so droll. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And Eleanor's like, are you kidding me? I can't, I, I don't have one of the things bookmarked, but he basically says something really mean, and she's like, oh, Mr. Palmer, you're so droll. And Eleanor's like, this is messed up. Who talks to their wife like this? Another, I mean, I guess that idea of sort of crotchety man marries silly woman was in yeah. Austin's head. <laughs> As this really unfortunate marriages that happened when uh, money is um, a factor. Basically. Well, one of, I mean, one of the things that she loves pointing out is how when we treat marriage and when we treat relation, lifelong commitments and relationships between people with so little care, you end up with these mismatched not miserable because we just said they're not miserable, but I mean, Mr. Palmer is not like happy in his marriage. No, no. When you treat marriage as purely a financial transaction or based like just on, well, he, she had a pretty face or like he was attractive and had some money. It's not a recipe for lifelong happiness. And we said last time that while these books, we don't consider them romances. Romance is a part of it. Yeah. I th- I mean, Austin very clearly, her heroines, the happy ending is you find someone that you do. You're compatible love. with. Yeah, yeah exactly. You find you love. That's the ultimate, like, um, that's, well, that's what I you're mean, reaching for, and it's more, so hard to attain it. It's almost, her novels are almost like an act of civil disobedience with <laughs> yeah, yeah, the endings that she writes. And because they're not like this gothic, ridiculous romance mm-hmm. type, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Her characters are real people living in a real in, in her real current society who That's have to basically reject the norm of society to find happiness and love. And, and everyone what happens is, in the end. Eleanor and Edward reject extreme wealth for going down to being just part of the church and relatively poor, you know, for gentility because yeah, that's it's, it's been like, I mean, obviously except for Emma who starts off rich, right? Right. But almost seen as like an act of bravery to find someone like even in Pride and Prejudice. I mean, Lizzie yes. would have married Mr. Collins, right? He proposed yes. to her. 
Yes, an act of bravery. I love that because that's exactly what's going on is bravery in sticking to your morality and your ideals and your, you know. It's, it's and Fanny, and Fanny is probably, Fanny Price is probably the best example of that. Oh my gosh. Um, for saying no, like to turn down. And I mean, we know that this is what Austin something her, she did herself, right? Right. To turn down a marriage proposal that makes sense on paper, it makes good financial sense, was to expose yourself to what like ridicule criticism attention criticism mm -hmm. have your family turn against you yep so i mean i think that it was i think it's definitely brave to kind of hold out so this kind of i don't know maybe it's just late but i feel like this romantic ideal which we kind of see as silly now right to hold out for true love which is something marianne would expound but to refuse to marry without affection is it's it was brave even though that was kind of seen as a romantic ideal so basically Palmer should have just held out for something better <laughs> yeah would she have found uh, you know who Charlotte Palmer should have married is Sir John Middleton because he is dumb and also very friendly and I feel like they would have complimented he also but then he marries like the total opposite right yeah. I guess yeah so Mrs. Jennings daughters are basically yeah, that's the problem. She can't even figure out their disposition so the right guy gets married to the right gal. Because but Mr. Again, again yeah. we have an example of two sisters, which yeah. I would think is starting off like Romeo and Juliet, two families. <laughs> so again, you have a set of sisters who are opposites in personality. But again, they're both, they're, they're at the extremes, whereas Eleanor and Marion, we talked last episode about how the novel is about the characters kind of reaching an equilibrium between sense and sensibility. Um, and I think Mrs. Palmer and Mrs. Jennings, who are the sisters, well, not Mrs. Jennings, whatever, Lady Middleton, yeah. right? They're kind of too far also down the extremes. Lady Middleton is so cold. Yes. And, non-expressive uninterested in anything but her children yeah she's so like she just i just picture her just like staring off into space all the time yeah yeah and um, so john but, it's um it's this very shallow person who loves to be around people but that's just an innate trait in him it's not it's not a, a virtue he's not interested in getting to know people he doesn't even understand the concept of getting to know people right. to him being part, you know, being in each other's presence was to be intimate. I mean, that's all that it took. And I think we kind of all know people like that who you're not quite sure why they keep inviting like all of these. It's well, kind think, of the I think, thing. I think Sir John is kind of summed up by when we meet the Steels. Yeah, you should read it because basically he's, aren't they like a relative of a relative of a relative? And he's like, oh, we've known them forever. We met them five minutes ago. And so they're going to stay with us for three months. And yes, yeah, so they get there. They immediately fall all over Lady Middleton's children saying how wonderful they are. So Lady Middleton loves them. So Lady Middleton says, yeah, these are really great girls. And then it says, Sir John's confidence in his own judgment rose with this animated praise. And he set off directly for the cottage to tell the Miss Dashwoods of the Miss Steele's arrival and to assure them of their being the sweetest girls in the world. From such commendation as this, however, there was not much to be learned. Eleanor well knew that the sweetest girls in the world were to be met with in every part of England under every possible variation of form, face, temper, and understanding. Yeah. Sir John wanted the whole family to walk to the park directly and look at his guests. Benevolent, philanthropic man. It was painful to him to keep even a third cousin to himself. They know nothing about these people. Just met them 10 minutes ago. Yeah. <laughs> but this is perfect for the Steels. I mean, this is what the Steels do. 
exactly. get themselves like invite to people they don't know and like charm their way in. And he, able, I wonder if I could do that. I just need to go to England and like get invited. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You need to meet with a Sir John, and all of a sudden he'll be like, "You're third cousins, and you're you know part yeah. of the gentry oh, now." I need to find out where the people who actually own the house that's Downton Abbey hang out. <laughs> So Julian Fellows, the guy who writes Downton Abbey, he also wrote a book. It's called uh, Snobs, and it's about the modern-day gentry, and it's about a woman who's basically trying to meet one of the family who owns those houses so she can basically get married. I'm a big fan of Julian Fellows. I really like Gosford Park, which he also wrote. Um, And he actually, I think, produced and... Um, had an acting role in um, a really good show called Monarch of the Glen that was on for a long time about a Scottish family um, that owned an estate, a failing estate. It was very, I mean, it was like you take Downton Abbey and move it up to Scotland, and it was kind of like that. Like, how do we keep our estate going? Is there anything else that you'd like to uh, highlight? We kind of already talked. I have a passage here about Mr. Palmer. Mr. Palmer, as I was saying, uh, slights his child. Um, and it, here's the passage. It's Mr. Palmer maintained the common but unfatherly opinion among his sex of all infants being alike. And though she could plainly perceive at different times the most striking resemblance between this baby and every one of his relations on both sides, there was no convincing his father of it, no persuading him to believe that it was not exactly like any other baby of the same age nor could he even be brought to acknowledge the simple proposition of its being the finest child in the world. Um, <laughs> it's like another one of those Austin characters that is very real to me. He is not. Yeah. Like some of the characters tend to be caricatures. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But purposeful. Like I think she does it purposefully, right? Like um, Anne Steele is totally over the top. Um, but I feel like Mr. Palmer, like he's just a dude. Yeah. Yeah, he could he's be just real. Not, He's like, what? leave me alone. I just need to read the <laughs> I don't want to sit here and talk about how my baby is perfect. Like he's a baby. <laughs> so we're talking about this whole episode has been about humor and the secondary characters, which to me are kind of one and the same. Because when I picture, if you were to do a 3D diagram of sense and sensibility, or say like do a 3D sculpture of it, to me, you would have Eleanor and Marianne in the middle, and I'm doing little hand gestures. And then you would have, Willoughby and Edward kind of rotating around them and Colonel Brandon like rotating around them as the other main male characters and then ringing around all of this almost like an asteroid belt around these real normal people that you could meet in your everyday life main characters is this cast of funny ridiculous secondary characters (laughs) Um, and I just, that's what I just picture in my head. You've got Eleanor and Marianne at the center, the men kind of moving around them <laughs> and then moving around all of that is just the, these funny, weird, it's very Shakespeare actually, very well read in Shakespeare oh, yeah. where you have your characters and then you'll have these other characters where they're for comic relief mm-hmm. and we'll just kind of like water on the mm-hmm. stage mm-hmm. around the action um, and have like little like subplots or little sub monologues that don't really. Just like Michael Keaton in um, Much Ado About Nothing with Kenneth Branagh. Just yeah, like- exactly. His like um, head of the guards character. Yes. Right? Yeah. Where he has, you have these moments with these characters that are just purely for comic relief. And so I view <laughs> these secondary and tertiary characters. Yeah. But she's still just saying it. something 
f funny yeah. about people like that. I mean, she it, it's not just comedy because it's also a little bit of satire. She's still saying a little bit of, of funny stuff about them, which sort yeah. of elevates the material. Oh, definitely. And I think, well, one of the things I think it serves plot-wise, here, I'm going to move this down because people have to see my awesome t-shirt. Um, one of the things it does, too, is if you're going to have, I've criticized this novel specifically for telling, not showing. But I think yeah. why you have this broadcast of ridiculous people is it's one thing to be like, Eleanor's the sense, guys. She's totally the sense. She's really <laughs> logical and smart. But a way that she shows us that is you have Eleanor interact with all these people, and then you have her reactions to them, which is recognizing that they are ridiculous. And so as a reader, like, and as the reader, we know they're ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> But it's and also so more, when you see yeah. Eleanor's react, this is what I was saying. Eleanor's a great judge of character. As the reader, you're like, she gets it. She, <laughs> We're enjoying it she, along with her. <laughs> through all these people and all their weirdness and how strange they are and funny. And she sees it for what it is. She's not participating in that like circus. Yeah. And that's sort of Elizabeth Bennett has also had to take a step back yes. and not participate yes. in that circus. But both Eleanor and Elizabeth Bennett have to be polite to those people. Yes. And they have oh, to maintain wow. those relationships and they have oh to you know, do what's expected of them. Um, Kristen, you are so smart. I would love I don't think I've really ever seen a lot of comparison between Lizzie and Eleanor. Eleanor is just basically like the more introverted version of Lizzie, right? Yeah, and and she because she's Lizzie less can, of a, Lizzie can make the joke. Yeah, she's witty, that, but she, it's on the inside. The wittiness is all on the yeah, inside. Eleanor is but Eleanor is almost even like more dry. Yes, yes, in her comedy, but she doesn't say it out loud. It's all inside. Oh wow, that was a really really good. Um, oh, thank you. And they both have these people who refuse to abide by social conventions. Marianne refuses to abide. Mr. Darcy refuses to be polite. And the the conflict is both of them just being like, guys, <laughs> you're killing me. <laughs> I do have I do have one question that occurred to me earlier that I didn't want to interrupt you and ask, but I'll ask now because I think we're wrapping up with our actual plot discussion. I think it was Anne Steele who said it, who said, oh, law. Is there any Austin character who actually says, oh, law, and isn't totally? <laughs> no, I don't think so. Because Isabella, uh, Isabella Thorpe says it, too. Yeah, doesn't Shaw. Leah say that, too? Yeah, she does. Yeah. Law, you are so strange. Yeah. Do you, do you think it's almost like... Um, like a current day, you know how we do the valley speak for girls? Yeah, 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 exactly. It would be like a uh, whatever. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like every third word. Like, and I was yeah. like, what? And she was like, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, so exactly. say, oh, <laughs> Absolutely. And it's sort of a little bit more common or vulgar to like, you know, um, do that rather than speaking very properly and concisely. And I think that's also what they're trying to uh, convey as well. Um, the exclamation like that. So yeah, I think I think we're wrapping up. I have one more um, thing to to talk about. It's a really brief scene that is so funny. It's about I've titled this section of my notes the tallest grandchild, and this oh, yeah. takes place. Um, okay, where... but let me just say before you start that this happens now. Even oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. Almost verbatim, this conversation will take place in homes across the world. Exactly. And it's so funny. And so the situation is, 
Um, because sometimes it's just, as you said, it's just pride and proprietary feeling for your own child or your own grandchild. What's happening is everybody's at a dinner, including Lady Middleton and Fanny Dashwood. And these are the two mothers of the story. And both the, the so two mothers are there, and also both grandmothers are there. Um, Mrs. Jennings and Mrs. Ferris, the really mean mother of Edward, who's Fanny's mother, right? So we've got two mothers, two grandmothers, and then everybody else. And um, they uh, so this is after dinner. So the men stay behind to smoke cigars and talk politics, and the women all go into the drawing room. And it says. Uh, then it was all over, and one subject only engaged the ladies till coffee came in, which was the comparative heights of Harry Dashwood and Lady Middleton's second son, William, who was of nearly the same age. Had both the children been there, the affair might have been determined too easily by measuring them at once. But as only Harry was present, it was all conjectural assertion on both sides, and everybody had a right to be equally positive in their opinion and to repeat it over and over again as often as they liked. The parties stood thus. The two mothers, though each really convinced that her own son was the tallest, politely decided uh, declined in favor of the other. The two grandmothers, with not less partiality, but with more sincerity, were equally earnest in support of their own descendant. Lucy, who was hardly less anxious to please one parent than the other, thought the boys were both remarkably tall for their age and could not conceive that there could be the smallest difference in the world between them. And Miss Steele, with yet greater address, gave it as fast as she could in favor of each. Eleanor, having once delivered her opinion on William's side, by which she offended Mrs. Ferrers and Fanny still more, did not see the necessity of enforcing it by any farther assertion. And Marianne, when called on for hers, offended them all by declaring that she has no opinion to give as she had never thought about it. <laughs> Perfect encapsulation of so, all of these characters and their personalities. I, I, I remember reading that section and just, <laughs> it, it, this is one of those parts where you, this is one of those parts where you just go, whoo, this is too real. That's too real. Because... <laughs> How many times? How many times have you found yourself in a group of people where, like, you kind of know them, but you don't really know them? <laughs> so there's not a lot to grab onto conversationally. Yeah, you're not sure what to talk. And so you find yourself talk like this long conversation, say about the weather. Yeah, <laughs> and in this happens a lot because you have these like topics that are safe to talk about, like the weather, children, like your children, like if job your jobs, right? You have these categories, like it's oh, it's safe. Everyone can contribute and talk about. It. And it's been going on. And in my head, I will think, like, why am I having this conversation? <laughs> I cannot believe I've been talking about the weather. <laughs> you know, like, you, have you had that? Is oh, God, yes. Okay. Oh, okay. man, yes. But reading the passage, I was just like, oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. And, and sometimes I'm hard on myself because I'm like, I should be doing better at making this conversation more interesting. Yeah. Like this is the most like, Oh God, mind numbing conversation. But that's, that's what the rules of propriety and yeah. society demand even now. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And it's hard too. I have to say just moving to Boise. I mean, I've already made met really nice people and, and made friends here, but when you're meeting someone for the first time and you have no common ground and you have to fix on a subject, it's just like, 
so hard sometimes. I'm like, think to myself, I'm really hard on myself. I'm like, you're being boring. You're being boring, you know, say something more interesting now, you know, like see, you know, because I, I feel like I have to entertain the other person so much. But when it comes to topics like that, where you have to stay on these very, you know, prosaic, like, oh, it's very, uh, you know, dry today or whatever, you know. Um, it's Boise. It's so dry today. Well, actually, a conversation I have with a lot of people and a very handy, you know, conversation, actually, uh, because the Pioneer Fire is going on right now. It is extremely smoky. Mm. Like sometimes we're not going to talk about the weather on the podcast. Oh, oh, okay. Oh, wow. Okay. When Eleanor has ceased to rejoice in the dryness of the season. um... (laughs) (laughs) I'm just really excited for autumn because I love the way the dead leaves pile up. It is not everyone who has your passion for dead leaves. (laughs) I have an extreme passion for dead leaves. Someday I'll show you my art book that I've dedicated to my hand-drawn etchings of the dead <laughs> Valley Um Well, I was making a joke. I mean, I am very interested in hearing about the fire because I think that's terrifying. Oh, no, it's it's fine. But, you know, we were just talking about what do you say? And, you yeah. know, what, well, it's just what like, about, like in college. Like, you meet someone in college. Oh, um, where are you from? What dorm are you in? Do you know what your major is getting yeah. Like, those are the questions. In Pride and Prejudice, when Elizabeth meets Wickham, the first thing he says to her is about the probability of its being a a wet night. Yes. And she thinks to herself that even the most common and threadbare topic can be rendered interesting by the skill of the speaker. Mm -hmm. And um, it's like that. It's like, yeah, that's all you got. So you got to really, you know, figure out how to work with it there, you know, and, and. um, Although to be fair, it doesn't take Wickham long to launch into his whole, like, oh, yes, my life story. And then she is really captivated for sure. Yes. Nobody ever talks like that. (laughs) <laughs> in uh, in this world. But I think Austin, what she does brilliantly in that section you just read is make very clear that no one is really enjoying this. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Except for the um, really invested people, the mothers. The grandmothers, and- right? The grandmothers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and so this is a perfect example of, I don't know if we actually talked about this, how because Marianne has so much sensibility and is not really able to dissemble, she is often kind of rude to people. Oh, Yeah. So and she says she offends all of them. It's like, oh, Marianne, what do you think? And she's like, I don't give a shit. Like, I don't care. <laughs> yep. like, I don't care. Yep. And they're just like, oh, how can you not care? It's the children. Whatever. For someone with so much sensibility, she seems to be uninterested in their feelings and hurt, not hurting their feelings, you know? Oh, okay. She so, Kristen, you basically just nailed it. I can't believe we haven't mentioned that in the last episode. I know, I'm sorry. I didn't mean it. A perfect example of how Marianne is a teenager. She's so full of feelings, but she only cares about her own feelings. Yep, yep. You know? Other people don't have feelings because they're so shallow. You know, like, have feelings that are... She's the only one who truly feels it. She's so wrapped up in herself because she has no awareness of other people. So then when Eleanor 
she finds out what was going on with Eleanor, it like blows her mind. Like, I can't believe you were experiencing all this and going through all this. Because how could anyone else be feeling pain other than me? Yeah. And how could people have feelings that are under the surface? Like, I can't imagine that. And, uh, you know, it comes to a new understanding of the world that, you know, it, it, people don't have to be demonstrative to have be having feelings. Yeah. I actually, I, I think that actually Marianne with a couple of, with, by the time she hits 35 and is almost dead, um, I bet she <laughs> really... I think she grows. You know, a lot of her issues, I think, are things that she will just grow out of with maturity. She's only 17. Exactly. Yeah, and she's a good girl. I mean, she's a nice and uh, honorable and moral person. I, she, she definitely grows out of it. She definitely grows to love Colonel Brandon. I mean, she, yeah. she becomes far more mature. Yeah. Okay, so having, um, put, yeah. having put sense and sensibility to bed with my mic drop point, yeah. um, is there any, or do you have any last thoughts not really. Like I just really, if we're talking about humor, I just really like the toothpick man. So the toothpick man is definitely, I, I do know for sure that you emailed me and you were like, this is hysterical. We're talking about this because it's just, I read it like three times. I went back. I just kept clicking the back button on the Kindle. <laughs> it was so funny. Oh my gosh. Um, but I think it's time to go down the lane, Kristen. <laughs> you will see what's in at the Weechee. Um, so I walked for a mile in my boots of Nankin, galoshed with leather or whatever. In mud, at least on her petticoat. And um, we received an email from our fan, Mr. I, Ian, we could say his name. Um, and he has, he had listened to episode one and wrote to us and made a point that is just so great. And this point actually is not Ian's, um, he, he credits it to a guy named Peter Conrad, who wrote the introduction to the Everyman's Library edition of Sense and Sensibility. I think that he's just, I think Peter Conrad is just a pseudonym for Ian, really. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Probably, yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. We'll just assume that uh, Ian is being modest and that he really yeah. came up with this. So I'll actually just read exactly what he he says. So there, it's very astute. It is not just a contrast between Eleanor and Marianne that forms the heart of Sense and Sensibility, but a contrast between both the sisters and the rest of the world. Lucy Steele and Fanny Dashwood in particular are the most cold-hearted and cruel characters in Austen, with the possible exception of Aunt Norris. Yet they couch their cruelest remarks in the voice of sensibility, of feeling and showing themselves to be the most warm-hearted. All of their most mercenary, selfish, seemingly rationally oriented decisions are cloaked in a thick layer of do it for the children or I love him too tenderly to give him up. And I, I just thought that was so, so insightful. Um, and I think the, um, like my, the Margaret Riley 3D version of the Sense and Sense of the Universe kind of takes that into consideration as well, because yeah. you have Eleanor and Marianne in the middle and then like the, the people with the fake circling around. Yes. Them. Yes. The, as you get farther and farther out, the, the people's, people's sense and sensibility gets <laughs> less and less. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. For sure. No, for sure. As you get yeah. further away from the sisters, the actual sense, especially the sense, let's be honest, <laughs> um, yeah. starts to yeah. like disappear. The further you are in terms of character, import, not importance, but like time on the page, the weirder you probably are. 
Um, and before everyone emails me, I know that I said earlier that I said, oh, I guess J.K. Rowling was an Austin fan. Of course she was, because she named the cat Mrs. Norris. Mrs. Norris. Yep. So don't, I remembered, I remembered. <laughs> if you want, I'll edit the part out where you say, I think, and just leave in the uh, positive statement that J.K. Rowling is an Austin fan. Yeah, just have like, <laughs> just be like, and Jane, she must have been a Jane Austen fan. <laughs> no, it's okay. You don't have to edit anything. I'm clearly I'm not afraid of sounding or looking stupid on this podcast. So yeah. <laughs> right. All right. All um, We're all here for your entertainment. Are you not entertained? <laughs> <laughs> what what uh, more do I have to give? Uh, but we had other. We had another email, right? Um, don't okay, we need to I, we get an email from Bethany? Am I so bad? Oh, 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 yeah. No, this is really interesting. So Bethany. Uh, started Googling around to expand her knowledge of the books. And she discovered that on Wikimedia Commons, there is someone who has created graphics that illustrate the family trees of five of the Jane Austen novels. And so you can go there. It is fascinating. So you can go and you can open them up and trace the family trees. And there's actually more nuance there that you can pick out than what you've realized at first. And of course, the sense and sensibility one is actually pretty complex because we've got this half brother thing going on. Um, and what's so clever and what I loved about these graphs is that anybody who is mentioned, even if they're mentioned one time, even if it's in a throwaway comment, they make it into this graph. So you remember at the beginning of Mansfield Park where uh, Miss Mariah Ward makes this great match with Sir Thomas and it says, uh, her uncle, the lawyer, himself allowed her to be 3,000 pounds short of any equitable claim to it. Well, her uncle is in the family tree. It's like his, uh, her uncle himself. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And I just thought that that was so great and someone took such care. And I really appreciate that. You know, um, we can all really appreciate that. And then, and then and I plan um, to share the links to those on the Facebook page so oh, people totally. can find them easily. Because I know my mother will definitely, she loves genealogy. And so she'll be super fascinated by that. And um, Bethany also men mentioned something else, which we will get to next time when we talk about the um, Angley adaptation of Sense and Sensibility. Lee, Lee and Thompson, 1996, Sense and Sensibility. It, it, she sent an article and it's fascinating. And we need so, to make Bethany like our unpaid, uncredited research intern. Um, we are accrediting her, so no, she's Bethany, halfway there. If you, uh, if you want to have a job that has absolutely no benefits, no pay, no credit, um, but you just take care of your two lazy podcasters and do all of our research. Like, have we got the position for you? <laughs> you know, I mean, I really appreciate it, especially because, you know, lately with everything that's been going on with me, like putting the, putting the podcast front and center has been actually really hard. And so the fact that people have been emailing with their thoughts is really, I really appreciate it because it makes me feel like, you know, somebody's actually listening to this. This means something. I'm having a dialogue, and um, it, it's really uh, inspiring to me. So I really appreciate that. So, what am, am I chopped liver? Like, what? <laughs> I'm not part of. I mean, in addition to you, you know that. Am I not enough? <laughs> <laughs> well, no, but I know, I know that you are. I know, I know. I'm just you, and I feel exactly the same. I mean, I would record this podcast even if no one did listen to it because I just love talking to Kristen um, about Austin and books and all of the things that we love. But the fact that 
there are people who enjoy listening to it and who respond and engage. It just like adds a whole other level of pleasure to it. It's just really, it's really great. Yeah, it is so, so great. It means a lot to us. And so thank you for listening. And I think that Kristen, do you happen to remember, maybe I'll check the Podbean page. Um, when our one year anniversary will be, because I think it's actually coming up. Yes, I think you're right. I think we posted in uh, December first. December? Wouldn't it be cool for our one year anniversary if we like? We should. We'll, we'll we'll noodle on it for sure. We can also we can also we also have promised to do at one point a book review of the Jane Austen book club as well. Like oh yeah, Joy that's Fowler. right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I think we were going to save that for kind of the list of things we do when we run out of actual. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Although we could we could pepper it in because then that would draw out. So people are like, they talked about all the books. I'm not listening to this anymore. Like, <laughs> we should do like we should actually del- delayed gratification and like do a lot of tangent episodes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Leading up to the final one, which is probably our Pride and Prejudice. Uh, oh yeah, read last, and it will be like a ten episode series. <laughs> one we at least six episodes because one per episode of the mini series when you have this, yeah, uh, right. the six oh cd box set the six tape vhs tape box set yeah we'll basically dine out on pride and prejudice for about a year <laughs> so. yeah. but we still have persuasion okay so anyway do we have any more old business that we need to talk about other than our fantastic mailbag the wheat chief i think so so we still so next episode we will discuss the movie. I don't know if we're going to do I don't think we're going to do a like movie commentary. No, I would like to put some clips together so we can play. Yeah, we'll have clips, but we'll do an actual like discussion, not um MST3K style. Yeah. Talk a lot. Um and I'm actually going to also try to find um the recent BBC. Um, adaptation. I haven't watched it since you and I watched it together when it first aired on PBS. You should watch it. And honestly, after we do Ang Lee, we may want to do an additional podcast on Davies and talk about what we liked and didn't, you know, different. Um, and I know a separate episode for that. Yeah, I think we should. Okay. Um, honestly, I need an hour and a half to talk about the Ang, Ang so there's no room for any comparison to anything else. You know, that's a good point. So. Okay, so why don't we, I will email you and we'll, oh, I guess we should go off live if we're going to talk yeah. about it. Yeah, all right. Thanks for close the curtain. Yes, thanks so much for listening and we'll talk, talk to you next time. See you next time. Hey, everyone. Bye.